Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. I'm so thrilled to be joined today by Sarah Blakely Cartwright, who is the author of Red Riding Hood, a number one New York Times bestseller published worldwide in 38 editions and 15 languages. She's the editor of Hauser and Worth's The Artist's Library for Ursula Magazine. She is publishing director of the Chicago Review of Books and an associate editor of A Public Space. And her first novel for an adult audience is called Alice Sadie Celine. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Maris. Thank you so much for having me. I feel starstruck to be here with you. I've listened to so many of your episodes. Um, oh, I've stopped. I've <laughs> met a few celebrities in my day, but I was joking to someone the other day that the most um, starstruck I ever was was to meet the bookworm, KCRW's bookworm, Michael Silverblatt. Yes. Met him. Yes. Oh my God. When I heard that voice and, you know, he shook my hand, I was like, wow, the bookworm. <laughs> so I feel that way today. I, I, I love that. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> so Alice, Sadie, Celine, I love that even the title can't be bothered with uh, extra stuff. <laughs> we are really zoomed in on this love triangle and these three women. And tell me about writing a book that really has a narrow focus that is so intimate. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the title um, came about, it was the title in my working document from minute one um, when I was a cursor blinking in the blank. Um, and it is because on that day one, the three women came to me completely fully formed and they have not deviated. They were exactly who they were. Um, they've, they've maybe deepened, of course, hopefully, um, sure. but they, um, they came to me alongside the premise, which is this affair, um, the story of a girl who falls in love with her best friend's mother or vice versa, because we hear from each of the characters equally. Um, and I began with that idea of the triangle, um, a closed triangle, a mother daughter in one direction, a best friendship in a second direction, and in a third direction, closing the triangle, you know, lovers, romantic relationship. Um, and I realized that I'm someone who's not great at the architecture of plots. So I realized that I could make life very easy for myself by having this triangle in which the threat to these relationships would be the organizing principle of the story. Um, and that I didn't need much else than just being able to explore those three directions. Um, and I loved that the the characters came that way, um, you know, like Athena from Zeus's forehead or Aphrodite <laughs> from the scallop shell. Um, and I think that's why I gave them that title. Um, and you know, the order, that's the order in which we hear from them, their three perspectives. Um, and Sadie, who's the daughter, links the two, you know, she's both the the glue and the barrier between them. So that's why it's Alice, Sadie, Celine. Um, proper sandwich. A proper, a proper Sadie sandwich. Delicious. Um, just add ketchup. And yeah, and the names, you know, the characters' names, even as I'm saying it, I feel like I keep needing to say for your listeners, like Sadie, the daughter, Celine, the mother, um, because I wanted to give them names that would play off of each other, maybe even sometimes disorient the reader, um, hopefully not badly. I don't think I, I kind of mm -mm, was mm -mm. cautious of that. Okay, thanks, Mary. Um, <laughs> good. 
And that's actually thematic in a way is that this breakdown of de definitions I wanted, that was, you know, again, on day one, miraculous day, doesn't always happen like that, but that came to me as well. You know, what happens when the boundaries between our prescribed identities and affiliations break down? What is a mother, a lover, a friend? What happens when a mother is a lover, is a friend? Um, I think some of that came out of my own childhood. Um, I was raised by two single parents. They were never together in my lifetime. They got accidentally pregnant with me when she was 43 and he was 32, 11 years older, um, mom. And she never had a romantic partner in my life that I know of. She's a woman who huh. taught me completely how to live for oneself. You know, she is has incredible freedom. Um, and meanwhile, my father always had a girlfriend, a wonderful, powerful woman who stayed close with me after they broke up. And so there mm -hmm. are about like six women who were in our lives who all kind of were mother figures for a time, but they were his lover and then they broke up and they became my friend. So all that is yeah. just like, was interested in seeing um yeah. those dynamics. Those dynamics, exactly. Um I I want to start with Celine because she's just so fun. Mm. She is sometimes I have to remind myself that I am no longer young. <laughs> and um <laughs> <laughs> and that Celine and I are just about the same age. Um, she had Sadie at a, a, a very young age. And then soon after she had Sadie, she had a real great awakening, let's say. Mm -hmm. And she became a feminist of, of the early aughts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I want to hear about developing both her character and developing her authorial tone. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so Celine, I like to call her a female chauvinist, um, which we don't see all that often in literature. Maybe um, she's a person of moderate appetites. Um, and yeah, I feel like she really, you know, you brought up her feminism. I feel like she really uses feminism to justify her narcissism. Um, she's, her activism is sort of partial. It's mostly in service mm -hmm. to herself. She's waving the Celine flag. Um, she, you know, I think the there was, you know, second wave feminism and then, you know, riot girl kind of third wave feminism, which to be reductive about it kind of focused on vagina-centered topics, um, you know, orgasm and birth and rape. Um, and, you know, Celine is someone who, and we've seen that kind of feminism fall under scrutiny as failing to account for the myriad differences among women. Um, and for me, you know, as a character writing her, that's something that Celine is eminently guilty of as a narcissist. She collapses her experience with everyone else's. If she's feeling something, everyone else must be feeling it as well. If she thinks something, it must be true. Um, and um, sorry, got a little lost in the weeds there, but um, the um, I think what I was trying to write is, you know, how and to what degrees we're willing to allow women to live for themselves. And for me, that's, you know, the question at the heart of feminism, you know, wave or not wave or fifth or eighth wave. And I wanted to explore the boundaries that we set around other women's freedom, even or especially within families. Um, 
here, especially with her own daughter. You know, I think that male perpetrated sexism is well established, ever present, ever look. Um, but in fact, I think women do often participate knowingly or unknowingly in a patriarchal apparatus. Um, and you know, um, after Celine has been there to get to this point, is her own daughter going to be her executioner, you know? Um, and, you know, the limitations we place on women's freedom, even in the most progressive societies. Um, how is a mother supposed to behave? Does that question mean anything? Are there certain things, even in an enlightened society, that we should expect of a mother? Um, I... I don't know if you saw this, the, the retrospective by the artist, Alice Neal, the great artist um, at the Met. Um, she does these deeply empathic portraits, representations of the people around her. Um, the show was called People Come First. And um, you're just astonished walking around the show. Um, but then there's like a little footnote and she's such a great artist. And this does not detract from her greatness as an artist. It, I, it just doesn't, however, there's a footnote that she left her daughter down in Cuba with the daughter's father and the daughter tried to reach her many times and finally died of suicide, not having spoken to her mother in 30 years. And, you know, of course, the progressive way to think about this is, you know, she had to go, she had to live her life. She, you know, we hold women to impossible standards. Men have done this throughout history. Mm -hmm. Um, it was what she needed to do to leave us her masterworks. Um, and all that is true. And yet maybe even in the most broad-minded society, we could ask whether we should have expectations of women that they, of mothers, um, you know, that they show up, that they don't do damage, do no harm. But then again, I'm a new mother. Every mother does harm, you know? What is expected of me as a mother? I'd really love to know. And I don't have answers and that's why I'm a novelist, but. Yeah, I mean, the entire question I, I feel like the term art monster has really <laughs> yes, become like it, it's really a thing mm -hmm. since Jenny O'Feal's book came out in like 2014 love that book so much but it's who yeah. gets to be free be free be free who gets to be free mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and we should we should talk about setting because um this book takes place near Berkeley and built into that world is so much radical politics and and so much activism mm -hmm. and how how does that mm -hmm. I mean for me I think like if you give a novelist a utopia they're gonna want to poke a hole in it you know I think that was something that I wanted to um sort of explore is is it quite as wonderful a snow globe always as it you know seems to be from the outside um there's such a great history of activism there um and you know I'm, I'm I'm poking fun at it a little bit but um I I I really love it there and I think I think it is a utopia so that's not to not to diminish it <laughs> absolutely Berkeley, and Berkeley livers out there um I do love Berkeley um and I feel like maybe Berkeley is going through a similar thing that Celine, the character, is in just kind of having to acknowledge that many of the things that were fought for are now taken for granted. 
Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, like, especially, you know, reproductive freedoms being under such threat, you know, um, and I think that was something that was important to me in writing the book was to explore the obvious that a sexual body is nothing to be ashamed of. Um, and yeah, I think yeah, on, on the topic of sex, I think it's an important topic in the book and not just as an embellishment. I think mm -hmm. for the characters, the daughter is trying to work through her mother's sexuality to get to her own. Um, she feels fundamentally disconnected from her body. Um, I have a baby daughter now. Oddly enough, it feels more important to me than ever to see women enjoying their bodies on the page. Um, not that I want her to read my book and be, um, you know, have go through what poor Sadie went through with her mother, God forbid. But, um, you know, I think um, I didn't want to build the sex scene and fade to black and then pick back up with afterward dot, dot, dot. Um, I love that. And and I love that Sadie, it's it's so very clear. I think she says at some point, like having a very sex positive parent <laughs> is a lot of pressure. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't wish it on our enemies. <laughs> yeah. And and so you have a line that I love because it really in a couple of words tells me a lot about Sadie and that as a child. Sadie micromanaged her ant farm <laughs> and yes. you can see um if if you have a mother who is uh very whimsical and uh oriented to her own pleasure that you might want to try to grasp at some control I think that's absolutely true um yeah I think her mother is very passionate you know and she um in a way, you know, she, Celine would like to fly free of everything. She likes to destroy every definition, every boundary. Um, Sadie is after a very solid life, husband and kids and a timeline for those goals. She loves to have an itinerary, which is why this affair rattles her so badly. You know, it was not on the planned route. Um, so, and I think her reaction to the affair is, is kind of, interesting without saying too much for the listeners mm -hmm. who haven't read it but um I think you know the that Alice and Celine are sort of you know a lot of the you know frizzone of the affair is like well Sadie's gonna find out yeah. she's gonna be mad at us but again without saying too much sh her strength is in her dispassion you know it's kind of an armament she has over her or a shield against her mother who has never paused to reflect in her life Sadie's strength is distance. She can pull back enough not to be overtaken. There's this farcical element to the novel, especially when we're playing with the idea that Sadie might really react when right. she finds out. And it's almost, and I hope I'm not giving too much away, it's almost anticlimactic. Like we're mm -hmm. expecting this big, tell me about messing with those expectations. Right. So I think that, um, you know, when I first thought of this triangle, I asked myself, you know, if my mother had an affair with my best friend, what would I do? I would be staggered, dumbfounded. It would break every rule of the universe. I would hate them. I'd never speak to either of them again. Um, 
And that was my first reaction. And then I wanted to kind of interrogate that. I was like, why such a visceral reaction? Why would I be so need to set so many boundaries around the people in my life? You know, is it such a monstrous misdeed? Is it costing me anything? Um, and for Sadie, I think that when, you know, her mother would react with a lot of violent anger and vitriol, which means that she would never react that way. Um, and it's also tactical because when, when she, if she doesn't react that way, then a lot of the air goes out of the relationship because, you know, if you're having an affair, there's really a third member there, which is kind of keeping everything a little bit, you know, of course it's both the, you know, she's both the wedge between them, like I said, but also you know, the thing that connects them. And she's the most important person in both of their lives um, until this point. So, you know, and I think actually Celine embarking on the affair, um, she's she actually takes her motherhood very seriously. She's not someone who's cold, you know, all, it's the opposite. She blows hot and cold and she's actually incredibly hot-blooded um, and feels passionately about her daughter. Um, and I think the affair is kind of Celine's way of getting closer to Sadie. She's always trying to close the gap between herself and her daughter. Sadie is always trying to widen it. Um, and the affair does both. Yeah. And, and so Alice is the first person we hear from and the first person in the title and we're getting to her third, <laughs> but she does seem to counterbalance both of the other women so well she's mm -hmm. she's sort of like the, the uh i'm gonna get this wrong alice and sadie are, are have like a, a a felix and oscar kind of thing going on between them i'm so embarrassed to ask who's felix and oscar oh the odd couple oh the odd um, couple of course oh my god how could i forget that i played florence in the female mm -hmm. version of the odd couple in my high school at my arts high school how did I forget that? Uh, Florence and Olive. <laughs> um, Florence, well, that's why all... I didn't know. <laughs> oh my God. It's such a wacky little play. You guys got to find the female version. Um, which, God, now that I think of that, that's very me. I'm, that's hilarious. Um, anyway. Um, yes. You know, I really struggled, especially when like pitching the novel with how to frame whose story it was. Um, Celine and Sadie were much easier to write in some ways because their inner convictions are so visible. Um, they're really these very strong pillars. Alice's convictions are less identifiable at first glance, but they're no less strong. Um, Sadie's a crusader, but she actually has a lot of self-doubt. Um, Alice expresses a lot of self-doubt, but may be the most solid of them all by virtue of being supple, flexible, easygoing, able to contort herself. She's curious. She likes to be caught up in things and carried. Um, and there's a lot of strength in that. Someone who's very intrepid, who would venture into this relationship with her friend's mother, um, just because she's curious about it. <laughs> and, um, you know, I want to give her some credit for that. She's also nonpartisan. The other two characters are shifting alliances. They're very strategic. They're more bloody minded than she is. She is not strategic and um, it's not that she's dispassionate or detached, it's that she's broad-minded um, and just easygoing. And I think that side of her is very 
sexy to the other, you know, very alluring. I think that um, when I wanted to write a sexy book, Alice is a big part of that. Um, everything doesn't have to be hard. Things are easy for her. And that is if she just wants appealing to, to the other two. There's there's a little anecdote in here about how Alice uh, saw Robert De Niro on the street and um, was like, yeah, sure, well, we should ask him for a picture because it doesn't occur to her to that she might be bothering him. Like exactly, she's exactly things that might give the rest of us pause and we'd overthink. Um, you know, she doesn't overthink. She's not in her head the way the other two are. She's embodied. So. How does class fit into this equation? Because Alice ha comes from wealth uh, and she's rejected her parents' priorities, but there, of course, still is that safety net and, and that limited experience. Mm -hmm. Yes, Alice comes from wealth. Um, you know, Alice is not interested in acquisition that allows that which i felt was important for her character kind of thematically um you know even in relationships she's not concerned with owning anyone um the other two despite all their claims of how progressive they are are really like well she's my daughter and she's my mom you know and um you know the keyword being my yeah and then i also wanted adult at adult alice to have been coddled in some ways um you know, a little bit of a kind of little nod to millennial culture and participation prize culture, um, which the other two don't have, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it, it's such a stark contrast because the the one other character we really get to see, aside from Sadie's partner, Cormac, is, is Sadie's grandmother, Celine's mother, and how Mamie is her name, kind of anchors those two to a past that at least Celine is is very much trying to forget. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um yeah, you know, I'm somebody who loves backstory. Um and I actually edited a lot out, if you can believe it, because there's still a lot there. Um I don't read for plot. I really read um to try to understand the psychology of the characters on the page, but that sounds very stilted and kind of like sociological, but um, to try to, you know, I, I'll, I'm really happiest when I close a book, if I feel like I've gotten to know the characters really well. So I thought, ah, this isn't gratuitous. It's always a balance as a writer, you know, how much backstory right. is gonna be, um, you know, weighing the book down, um, but, I like that she's there and actually they're um, without saying too much, they're cleaning out her shelves. Um, and I'm also somebody who's nosy and I always like to look into people's shelves and character shelves. So <laughs> I, I love that. Or even just like what they would choose to wear to eat or yeah. All Gotta know stuff. all of that stuff. We don't want to be cheated on that. That's the good stuff. That's the good stuff. <laughs> Um, and again, not to give too much away, but I guess we could just say that there is a perspective shift, um, in the final chapter. And I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about making that decision. 
Yes. So when I sold the novel, when my editor acquired it, um, Olivia Taylor Smith, wonderful Olivia, brilliant Olivia, um, she said the ending is not working, you know, and it's something that I knew, of course, you always know when the thing is not working, but I was trying to slip it past her. Um, but she um, basically I had gone I had taken the characters in a very plotting way from A to B to C to D um, you know and I felt that was my duty you know we see them go home and go to bed and wake up and have their breakfast and put on their socks mm -hmm. and I realized you know you really right readers may not really love being led by the harness from checkpoint to checkpoint in that way um, and I realized that I could have a leap forward in time um, in which I let these characters who felt so real to me and so autonomous, um, I let them have their privacy, live their lives without me, you know, dragging them from point to point. And also thematically, um, this book being about what freedoms we do and do not allow women, um, I feel like looking 15 years into the future and having a new female voice and female character leading us through this um and also you know if the things that we think are such a big deal right now you know and if it's been mm -hmm. kind of this withheld secret from her um the next generation and then she finds out about this you know deep family secret and she's like what is the big deal like i i really that doesn't bother me at all like that's this is what you've been keeping as a big secret. So that was kind of interesting and exciting to me, that new perspective. Um, and then I had to ask myself where it would be meaningful to take leave of these characters. And that was both a challenging and exciting impasse for me. Um, those pages I was writing um, while I was pregnant and actually into um, the first month when I had my daughter. Um, and I really was asking myself, what am I aiming to say with this book? Which is a question that no writer ever wants to ask themselves. You know, what, I got asked that the other night in an event. What is the message of this book? Oh, wow. Oh no, the writer's nightmare. Um, Cause you don't want to be somebody that has no, you know, suddenly I was like, right, right, right. No message. But... Um, but you know, the, the first ending was completely terminative. These characters could not live together. Um, they had to disperse, um, splinter to opposite ends of the universe, but it felt very dishonest. It felt like someone else's book to me. And I, it felt like I tried to kind of decamp from the book and just abandon ship, you know? And I had, that was very annoying because I had really perfected the prose and written it out five mm -hmm. times. Um, but I really, without saying too much again, I really wanted to find a way to leave these characters in some sort of equilibrium amongst each other um and I realized how critical it was to me to offer a an affirmative view of women of human beings and of our ability to climb over the mountain past division to the other side um it's what I heard Idra Novi who you did such a great interview with she called liking someone beyond those disagreements you know um and what if these three women could find a way to sit down at a table with one another side by side and if that's sitting is meaningful not because they've changed, but because they haven't, because they've finally accepted, you know, or because they accept who each other has been all along and who they'll continue to be. 
the message is that we can climb over the mountain. It's hopeful. Yeah. 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 We, we need it's more of that. Yeah. Um, Sarah, before we go, would you like to recommend some books for us, please? Oh, yes. Um, I have been reading um, this year. I loved Ada Zhang's Sorrows of Others, which is stories of immigrants trying to piece together what she calls an entire life after their lives have been cleaved into past and future. And it's just brilliant and tender. Um, and I just picked up and haven't finished yet, even though it's very short, um, the um, January by Sarah Gallardo. Um, it's an Argentinian novel first published in 1958 and in, in English for the first time. Um, and it's a very vivid portrait of a 16 year old girl's private sense of guilt and culpability when she becomes pregnant after an assault. Um, and there is meant to be a very powerful scene in which she gallops recklessly on a horseback to induce a miscarriage, but I haven't mm. gotten to the scene yet, but um, okay. yeah, I'll, I'll report back to you, but it um, so far the prose is absolutely incredible. Um, and there's a very complex first scene in which she sees the person who she, who has perpetrated the assault. Um, and she thinks, but anyway, it's it's so complex, all of the things that she thinks when she sees him. Um, she she thinks looking into the future that she may not be alive the next year. You know, we don't know why, we don't know the reason, we don't know about the pregnancy yet. Um, and then she said, well, then he would finally look at her, this guy, and then she said, actually, no, he probably wouldn't even bother to look at me. He'd look at the other woman in the room, um, this other girl who she's jealous of. Um, and then she said, OK, well, in that case, I want to live because I, I won't bother to die because he won't just we won't even look at me then. Anyway, it's completely amazing and a master class in perspective. So I'll let you know how it turns out. I can't. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to pick this up. Yes. Um Sarah, thank you so much. Alice Sadie Celine is out now. You should read it. Thanks so much, Maris. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.